Good morning. Today is Tuesday, the 10th of October, 2023, and I'm here in the UK Column studio uh, for a, a really interesting but very serious interview with a lady called Sam. Um, we are going to be speaking on the subject of children and children being taken by the UK state. And this is a subject which, of course, the UK Column has talked about for many years. And although we've appeared to have been quite quiet on this subject over, I will say, certainly over the last couple of years, um, it's a very important subject that goes on. And after making a report on one of the UK Column news programmes a couple of months ago, uh, where I mentioned the organisation CAFCAS, uh, a lady contacted me and said, I have a story for you about what happened to my children. So today I'm going to welcome Sam, <coughs> excuse me, who's, who's come in on a remote link to the UK Column studio. And uh, we, we're going to talk about what has happened to her and her children. Sam, welcome and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Brian, for giving me this opportunity to come and talk to you and your listeners on UK Column. I really appreciate it. Yes, I have had your covering on Kafka and it really touched me. It was well balanced and that's why I reached out to you to give you a story or to give my story as well regarding my children and what happened. Okay, Sam, thank you very much for that. Now, we had a little bit of a chat before we started recording for this uh, particular uh, interview. And what we decided to do was to break it into two parts. So the first part today is going to be Sam telling her story, telling us what, what happened and what the situation is today, 10th of October. And then we're yes. going to look to do a part two where we will bring in more detail around the authorities and communication with the authorities. So, Sam, I'll bring you back on screen and um, start where you think is right. But tell us, first of all, a little bit about yourself, where you're from, how you came into UK, and just lead us in with a bit of background as to how, how these events unfolded. So I came in the UK in 20, 2014. I, I came from Uganda in East Africa, in Sub-Saharan Africa, as they call it now. Um, I left my home country as a young adult. I left because of issues around first marriage and arranged marriage. And then I fled to Singapore. And then from Singapore, I went to Malaysia. And from Malaysia, I went to Hong Kong. And from Hong Kong, I went to the UK. And from the UK, I went to the Bahamas. And then from the Bahamas, I was returned back to the UK. So this wasn't me going on a tour or a holiday trip. In this process, I was being trafficked. Was trafficked. How how did that process start for you? What what was the actual thing that made your decision that you had to leave your country, and subsequently that obviously got you involved in the trafficking? I was married off to an older Muslim man. Um, 
way older um, in age. And he's, he happens to be the father of my baby girl, Angel. I was a young girl in my early 20s or 19 at the time. And I left the country because I thought or I, I believed that I had more to my life than being in a, in a marriage like that at the time. So I left my baby girl safe with my mother. She looked after her and I fled to Singapore. I went into a, go, into a cafe and I realized that my country was a visa-free country for Uganda. I didn't have a visa, I didn't have anyone, so I left in disguise uh, from the airport and I went to Singapore. From there, that's when all my money ran out and everything, and I landed into trafficking, the trafficking rings that run Singapore, Malaysia, all the way to the south of America. So the situ- situation at home was that, was that uh, an arranged marriage that, that started your first relationship? Yes, it was. Um, I, we were Muslim at, uh, uh, in our house when I was growing up. So it was an arranged marriage. I, grew up, I went to a Muslim school. Um, I studied the Quran. I studied Hadith. I studied Tafsil. I left um, because it was, it was really risky for me and my baby girl, and it was serious with what was going on. My part of my family is still there, but yes, that it was very dangerous for my life and for my baby girl. So I left, and I had to find a, a, a better way of raising my children and a safer place to raise my children. But uh, in my early twenties, in my early twenties, I think most people can relate that as a young adult, you're very naive and you can easily be uh, you can easily be convinced to go with bad people um, as a young mother. So that's what happened to me. Okay. So when when you left when you left home, effectively, did you know where you were? where you were going to go? Did you have in your mind that you wanted to come to UK or was it that you were just desperate to get away? Well, um, I, didn't, I never planned to come to the UK. Um, even the, the home office knows or they have all the details. I never applied that I was coming to the United Kingdom, not a single day. I went from... Um, on the on the organized trafficking rackets, uh, we came from Singapore, Malaysia, to Hong Kong, to the Bahamas. So I left. I transited through London Heathrow to 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 the Bahamas, and I never stayed in the UK. But when I landed in Bahamas, I was bleeding heavily after what had happened to me in in the trafficking process. I was pregnant. And when I was there, they said, we suspect you've been trafficked and we've been tracking different international rackets. And we will send you back to London because that was, I think that's their international law. That was your last uh, transit or your last stop. So they deported me from Bahamas to London Heathrow because that's where I'd made my transit before, before I landed to Nassau. 
So when I uh, returned to London Heathrow, they, they started the investigation on me, the immigration officers and the home office. And I was so grateful because they took me out of this dangerous and evil world. The home office saved me from trafficking. The police took me away from trafficking. The UK police took me away from trafficking. And they started the investigations. Um, a, the Salvation Army helped me as well because they were contacted. They took me in with, um, they took me to a safe house um, in Dover. It wasn't a hotel, as people sometimes say. It was a safe house for women and men who had been trafficked. I was supported. I lost the pregnancy. Um, it was very difficult. For most people in this country, and I suspect most of the audience of the, the UK column, and yes. I'm one of those people, I have no real experience about what trafficking involves and how it works. I can read things uh, maybe in the national press, uh, reports and various stories, but you are the first person that I've ever been able to speak to who's actually been through the system. Now, I know this must be very traumatic for you to think about the time that you were you were being held by that trafficking system but are you are you able to tell us a little bit about how you came in contact with with the traffickers in Singapore and what happened what it was like and who the other people were that you came into contact with well trafficking is one of i think in my own opinion is one of the most misunderstood topic uh, because there isn't very some some people who want to really investigate it it's so difficult for them and the survivors they don't come out to talk about it for mainly safety because uh, we are we are told by the NRM system in the UK or most officials who deal with survivors of trafficking, that it's better actually to stay off social media or to keep your safety because it's really important that you don't come out and start talking about this. So for seven years, I never spoke about it in public or anything like that. But I will take you back a little bit of what it, a little bit of what it entails. I must, uh, um, when I was in Singapore myself, uh, organ harvesting was going on, um, drug trafficking was going on, but this uh, this was run by a racket of uh, not um, Singaporeans as per se, but a racket of people who were coming in, and uh, some people were coming from um, also all, all all countries all over the world because they've been doing it for so many years. I was. I was in dark rooms for a very long time. When I say dark room, it means people come into your house, in, into the house, not your house, but the boss or the owner's house. They have your passport, they have everything about you, and people use you. Sam, did those people make contact with you at, at the airport? When was the first day that one of these people approached you? Oh, when I ran out of all the monies I, I, was, I had in Singapore, I was 
I went out like a, a young person uh, and I met other black people who were there. And I said, um, do you know how I can get a job or how, what, I, what I can do right now? Because I've run out of my money and also I don't, I don't have a visa. And it's very, very strict in Singapore. If you don't have a visa, their rules are very, very stringent. So do you know um, what I can do? And one of, one of the girls told me, oh, there is this uh, lady here. She helps girls to get jobs. Uh, she has several people, not knowing they were actually trafficking women from all over the world. And black women as well were being trafficked a lot in Malaysia, in, in, in Singapore, at the border, Jobaru. There were young, young black women and all women from all over the world who were in these houses. Right. And and so so you're short of money. You make an approach to to other uh, black people who were there locally in Singapore, and yes. th- they effectively pass you on to to other people. Were the traffickers there straight away, or did I mean did you initially meet anybody who tried to help you in a genuine way, or when did the traffickers actually? Um, when did you make contact with the traffickers themselves? The man, he was Chinese. He, he was called Peter Hugh. He told me, you will come from Singapore because there, there are no jobs. We will take you into Malaysia and we will find you a job. So this is the journey you will take. You will go from, you will go from on the train. So you go from Singapore through a place called Woodland on the train to Jobaru. From Jobaru, you enter Singapore. Uh, you enter Malaysia, sorry. And from there, you get into Kuala Lumpur. So that's how I, I didn't realize that they were, all, they were all working as a racket. And some of them were actually black people as well. So it wasn't just like all oh, these um, Chinese people or white people working. They, it's a racket. It's a racket of all uh, nationalities who are working to traffic people. So it's not a particular person or anything. And that's how, because their main base was in Malaysia rather than Singapore, because in Singapore, it's, very, it's a small country, it's a small city, and it's easy to find them. But in Malaysia, it was so easy for them to run their rackets. And there were so many girls who were in these big houses and dark rooms, as we call them, who were being abused in all sorts of ways. Right. Okay. So, so Malaysia, the main base. This this makes sense to me. Uh, it's a few years since I've been in Singapore, but I know that it, that it's a, a very strict country, and uh, and the the law uh, can be very draconian for even minor offences in Singapore. So Malaysia is a safer base, and you 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 are persuaded to go into Malaysia. Um, when did you first realize that you were starting to be drawn into a system, that you were trapped in it? When I was told that I couldn't go out when I wanted to, when I was told that all the money I had, I was supposed to give it to this man. And when I was told that my passport, when I was passport, when he needed the passport off me, that's when I realized, oh, something is off here. And the job that you are expecting to work in a restaurant is not coming. And you keep waiting and they keep telling you, stay here, we'll get you a job. 
but when there is no there is no job, that's when I think the pen dropped, and I realized, oh, he's actually sexually using me, but also he's taking my passport off me, and he's telling me that other people will be coming in tonight. And I'm not the only person there because I wasn't the only person there because there were other girls there as well. Right. And so, so how long did you spend in Malaysia before you were moved on to Hong Kong? Uh, because they, were, um, they needed people who were fluent in English or who could speak uh, English. So they, they were not just using girls or women um, for sexual trafficking. They also did drug trafficking, and this was a our, our, our big racket. So they, they realized that I was um, able to speak English fluently. And that's how they gave me the suitcases to, to take to Bahamas um, in Nassau. They paid for everything, and that's how everything started. I didn't realize what I was carrying. But I now it dawned on me years later that it was it must have been drugs because I didn't know what was in there. And I'm so grateful because when I went down to Nassau, the police there knew that there was a rocket that was coming from Singapore, Malaysia, Hong Kong, and down to Nassau to get into Florida and then to get into the United States. I'm gonna I'm gonna say thank you for, for talking this through. Sam, it's a very important thing because um, the question for me straight away is why would the authorities not want people speaking out about this? Because the way to to start to break down organised crime like this is to expose it. So there's a number of different questions there. Um, I think you said to me a, a couple of minutes ago that you were abused yourself in this system. Was, was that the case? Abused in this system? Were you physically or sexually abused in this system? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Um, I, was, I, was, <laughs> I was sexually abused. Um, I was, um, for years, um, I was traumatized. Um, mm, yes, I was, um, I, yes, I was sexually abused and it's not something I talk about a lot because, yeah. No, okay, Sorry, okay. that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a difficult, that is a difficult question for you. Um, you arrive in UK and you said that you're grateful for the people who, started to talk to you. So when, when you got transferred back to Heathrow uh, from the Bahamas, uh, were you automatically picked up by border control in or the home office team in UK? Or did, did well, they know you were coming? Or did you have to make an approach to them? What, how, how did they interact with you? No, uh, in the queue, um, I was in the queue because the the, Baham, the Bahamian uh, police had deported me. So I think uh, we all know the, the process of deportation is they hand you over straight to the immigration police. Uh, you don't have to make any um, 
notices because they're handing you over to the next authority. So in my case, they handed me over to the British um, Immigration Police at London Heathrow. But I was really uh, deeply traumatized. Um, and I, was, I had a problem with a pregnancy because I came in um, after these several abuses. I was pregnant and the Salvation Army supported me uh, to have an abortion uh, at the uh, Murray Stops. I think they are called Murray Stops um, because they are the ones who were handling our uh, process. So it was a concentrated uh, abortion because I was overwhelmed. Um, yes. Okay, and can you tell us what what year that was, just to just so we can we get a feel for how long ago this was? Twenty fourteen in June, twenty fourteen. So you come into an organised system in the UK, which is designed. Oh, right. to... Say it again, sir. Organised, indeed. Oh my God. Okay, okay. Carry on. You've reacted to what I've said. Why have you reacted like that? Well, I was coming from a world of chaos, as you, you've heard, and those are just snippets of what I've, I've right. explained. Because I don't want to really overwhelm your, your listener today um, with what's really going on besides my children's case as well. But when you said organized, it, it clicked in my brain because indeed it's very organized. Uh, because I, I was living in survival mode uh, for all my life, uh, for, through trafficking, through anything. I was living in survive or you die. And then you come to a perfect world in the United Kingdom. A world so perfect that you cannot be imperfect. Yeah. A world so perfect that you cannot make a mistake. A world so perfect that you can lose your children when you seek support. Yes. Okay. Now I'm going to say I'm going to share with our viewers and listeners today that that uh, there is another lady who's with us who I've been able to speak to. Um, she's here to give you some moral support, and um, uh, I think that system works quite well. So I'm just going to say to the audience that Sam's going through some really difficult things to tell her, to talk about and recount, but uh, she does have uh, a lady supporting her in the background. The Home Office yes. team, Sam, did, did they uh, question you about what had actually happened to you? What I'm interested in is, did the Home Office try and establish more about the trafficking ring? Um, oh, because yes, they did. They did, yes, okay. They did. Yes, they did. Yes. So, so what, what did. sort of things were you asked? So they ask you the route or the route on how you got here. They will investigate, like, everything you've said. They, they will also, but for my case, it was uh, quite different because there were also other girls who had been trafficked on that same day by the same racket. They will ask you so many things, and um, they they took everything. I had the suitcases; they took everything. They 
they did a lot of samples. They tested me on the same day. I was detained um, at the London Heathrow Detention Center. Um, the questions were a lot, but um, I was in trauma mode as well. So most of the things they, they were asking were extremely uh, intrusive, um, one would say. But yes, they, did, they do investigate a lot. And I think uh, the asylum cases are different from trafficking, completely different, because the investigations with trafficking is 100 plus one overwhelmingly stressful and a lot. It's, it's very deep and very detailed. How long did this process take? How, how long were you detained and, and questioned? In the detention centre, they kept me there, I think, for four days or three days. I don't know. Um, but they kept us in a detention centre in London Heathrow. I remember I had a, an issue there uh, with the immigration officers. Um, I don't w wish to say anything, but um, I'd just come out from the whole marriage stuff, as I, uh, as I briefly explained to you. And then when I landed, landed at Heathrow, they, they gave me um, a lady who was a Muslim lady. I have so much respect for the Muslim community. But I just got so triggered again um, on the... On the at the airport when she was wearing the hijab and the niqab. It just took me back to where I was coming from and I, I became a little um, upset and I told her things I, I sincerely apologize because I shouldn't have said um, upsetting things to her. Okay, so, so you, were in the you were in the detention center for four days and yes. the, the Home Office has, has done a, a debriefing of you or an investigation. Um, if you were carrying drugs, yes. you, you seem to have been very lucky that there was, there was no other charges in, in relation to that. Well, I didn't traffic myself, Brian. So they had to, they, they had to start investigating um, all about the rackets and other people because they arrested people on the same day that they, they, they suspected to be traffickers on that same day. So it wasn't just me that they were uh, handling because on that same day there were other women who had been trafficked and men. So they arrested a couple of people, we are told, on the day as racketeers for this um, trafficking. Okay. And... So when, when did the asylum process start? It was months, um, weeks later, when I was asked whether I could go back to my own country because I didn't know what was asylum. I was asked whether I could go back to my own country or I, if I wish to stay in the United Kingdom because they've investigated and they're still investigating because at the time... They referred me to another organization called City Hearts. They are under the Salvation Army. And they asked whether I would I wish to 
to seek asylum in the United Kingdom. And I said, yes, I, I would like to seek asylum in the United Kingdom because I was overly grateful for people who took me away from the dark rooms, as I call it, um, who took me away from trafficking. So I was really grateful and I was so happy. And they said, okay, you can seek asylum. This is, um, they gave me the, pro the process of how it works. And that's how the whole journey of another, another journey of asylum begins because that's also another detailed journey that is, it can, <laughs> it's very overwhelming. We will revisit that, but let's, let's just move on through. So you were able to apply for asylum and you, you were given yes. asylum. So how, yes. how long did that process take from 2014? Uh, when, when did you finally achieve asylum to stay in the UK? Because I, I came in as um, under the trafficking uh, route, or what they call trafficking. So they had to process or investigate the trafficking case. That took them a year of investigating. Um, to conclude that I had been trafficked. So then they gave me what they call a discretionary leave to remain in the United Kingdom for one year. And, um, and then I lodged the application for asylum. When I applied for asylum, the discretionary leave to remain had to be to finish. After one year, I think that's when I was granted um, asylum in 2015. That was... A new start for you. Did you still have support from other people around you? Was there still support from the Salvation Army? Well, for one year, you receive, um, if you've been trafficked at the time, you're under what they call the NRM. NRM uh, is like a body that investigates all people who've been trafficked in the United Kingdom. And the Salvation Army gives you 60 pounds. Um, to uh, help you. The Home Office provides, if, if you're genuinely being trafficked in the United Kingdom, the Home Office um, helps you with therapy. So they helped me with therapy because for so many uh, months on end, I was not going out of the house. My brain was still stuck in the dark rooms. And if I went out, I would just, I would look for a, a cab or I wouldn't, I would not use public transport at all. And I was extremely hypervigilant because every person I would see, I would think, I would think they are the traffickers and all this. So it, I went through therapy. Uh, the Home Office uh, uh, supported me through this process. The therapist was a psychologist uh, in, up north. Her name was Dr. Janet Figan. She supported me through the whole process of trafficking and CBT and all these other uh, therapies they give, yes. Okay, so how did you start to build a proper life for yourself? Because you've made a huge amount of uh, progress since then. You've had, you've had some terrible things happen to you in UK, but how did you start that process of excuse me, establishing yourself in, in UK and building a new life? Um, I think from day one, because I, when I left Uganda, I was studying. So I have or I've always had an obsession to learn 
So the first thing I did was to sign up myself for college to start learning English, to start um, studying at the college in Manchester College. Um, yeah, so that's how I started. And then I went into a relationship with my ex and then my ex. I wasn't, I wasn't, um, I wasn't doing much at the time. I was just studying and uh, going to church, having friends. Sorry, I have to be precise on this then to make it clear for, for the audience. When you say your ex, this was actually a, a new person that had come into your life in UK. Is that, is that right? Yes. So you, you are very much establishing yourself, your learning. At the time, I was studying law with criminology um, at Manchester College because I wanted to be a lawyer to help young people so they, never, they will never fall into being forced into awful marriages. And also I wanted to help survivors of trafficking because I believe there is a lot of research on domestic violence, but there isn't much on trafficking. Uh, there is a, a whole movement about domestic violence in the United Kingdom, in Europe, and everywhere. But you barely hear about people who deeply investigate and give a concise, um, uh, you know, concise answer about trafficking. And if they do, they are, some of them are motiv- more politically motivated, and it doesn't really help survivors. Because when you say I was saved out of trafficking by the UK immigration police officers and home office. Some people, they say this, this is not possible or this is not, but they, they did. And not just me, they, they helped so many other people come out of trafficking. And this is not asylum. This is more heinous and sinister than any, anything else you could ever imagine. So you get into a, a relationship and really... This is the second phase, isn't it, of, of your life? Tell us as much as you can about um, that relationship. And the important thing is children. So what happened next as you're rebuilding your life? Okay. So I came from a traditional home. My mom, they say what you see at home is what you normally kind of replicate in the future sometimes. Um, sometimes it's not true, sometimes it's true. I got into a relationship with a man um, in the United Kingdom. Um, we met in a pub. I went out for a night out with my friend, and I met this man. He was way older than me, socially more empowered, economically, uh, uh, economically more powerful than me, obviously, because he was older. Um, he was a white man. And he, uh, after, sorry, Brian, after one night stand, I got pregnant with him. Okay, so that, that really starts us to come into the whole story about your children. So take us, take us through that. Yes, so my daughter was... My, my daughter was in Uganda. Once I got the application, 
that I was a legal migrant in the United Kingdom and my asylum had been confirmed. I approached different agencies. Oh, I forgot to tell you about something. So remember when you told me how did you really establish yourself? I've just remembered actually um, the Prince's Trust was helping me as well alongside the Home Office and the Rio Ferdinand Foundation because they, young, they help young people uh, who are coming from disadvantaged backgrounds. So I was in the northwest of England and the, they, they had the Prince's Trust there. I approached a, radio, a small radio station that was helping me through the Prince's Trust. They're called Reform Radio Manchester. Reform Radio Manchester, uh, the director of Reform Radio Manchester is called Miss Re Rachel Rogers. She said, uh, Sam, I think if you cannot afford a ticket to bring your daughter um, or a visa, I can, I can, I found something online let's approach the Red Cross to see if they can help you to re uh, reunite with your baby girl. And then we, uh, we approached the Red Cross in Manchester in Old Trafford. And Red Cross, uh, they were very kind to us and they accepted the application to reunite with my baby girl. They brought my daughter over to the United Kingdom. They, she was escorted here. So she didn't come with a family member or another person. She came with an organization called IOM, International Organization of Migrants. And when she came, the, she came to, to my apartment. I had prepared her bedroom. Uh, everything was colorful and we were super excited. And how old was she, Sam? How old was she? She was daughter? nearly she was nearly five. Right. She was nearly five. She spoke our mother tongue, Luganda. She was so excited. Um, so I was excited. I was extremely excited uh, to see my baby girl. I was so nervous and so happy. It was exciting. Um, at the time I'd just gotten in a relationship with this man. Uh, the father of my son now. Were you pregnant at the time your daughter came back? Yes, I was a few days pregnant when my daughter came. Okay. And I, I said to myself, not another abortion this time, sorry. So, because I had seen what abortion had done to me previously at Mary Stops, uh, I didn't really like the, the aftermath of it. So I said, this time, regardless of what happens, I want to go back again. But I think, I don't know what, what, the, what the intentions were. Your relationship moves forward and, yes. and you ultimately end up with a, with, with a baby boy. So what, what happens in that relationship? I, he, he, didn't, he didn't want the baby my son, uh, uh, so he, um, he wanted me to have an abortion immediately. And I stood my ground and I said no. So I carried my pregnancy. 
he was financially supporting us. Um, he did everything he could in his power. He was, our relationship wasn't perfect at all, but he was supportive as well because he used to do what he could. He, he never lived in the same house as me. We lived apart. He had his own home, his own family, his previous marriage. So that was also there in the background. Uh, well, very few relationships are perfect. So there were, there were some problems, but you were coping with the situation. And were there any external agencies in interfacing with you at that stage? Or were you and your partner de dealing with, with the issues on your own? Because I, I had this fear of, tell, I had um, a fear of not uh, uh, telling him off, as they call it in England, because he was way older than me. I, I didn't want to tell him off uh, very firmly. So I thought I, the best option would be I would do it as they do back home in Africa. I would go and speak to the local authority to help me talk to him for me, which was wrong because I didn't realize they call that domestic violence. Actually, now I, I know they call it a mediator. I wanted someone who could speak to him in a language that he could understand. Yes. Right. So I will you, take you back a little bit. So I approached voluntarily, I approached social services myself through um, the referrals there. I contacted, I contacted Salford City Council myself to tell them my daughter was coming. My daughter comes over on the uh, 23rd of Feb, 2017. On the 25th of May, 2017, my daughter is removed on an interim care order. Uh, when I... They asked me, well, how did you get into the United Kingdom? I came here as a survivor of trafficking. Uh, alarm bells went off. If you read all their reports, they started sexualizing me. They started using the most terrible words. Um, you know, it's these are supposed to be professionals. They started using the most demeaning and derogatory words against me and my daughter. They, they treated us, uh, they treated my baby girl so terribly up to now. I just, I just can't believe what happened. I, when my daughter came over, I was still in college, in Manchester College, trying to complete the diploma in law with criminology. I said to myself, I will not stop studying. So I signed my daughter up to a nursery in Salford Keys. It's called, it's called, um, self, uh, it's called um, nursery. They are based at in Salford Keys. I was blamed for taking my daughter to play at this nursery. It was a private nursery. No one was paying for it. It was part of my grant from the student finance and some of the funds that my ex-partner was helping me with. And I was doing odd jobs as well. And I was paying for my daughter to be in this nursery. The nursery colluded 
with the local authority to steal my children. And I believe it's called social engineering now because they send referrals behind your back to steal children of you. With your daughter, what, what excuse did social services use to take your daughter from you? Well, there wasn't any imminent harm. Even the judge confirms in the judgment. There wasn't obvious harm. There wasn't evidential harm. But there could have been a risk of future harm. A risk of future harm. I think COVID is a risk. The environment degrading is a risk. Earthquakes are a risk. How many children will the state take away from parents as a risk of future harm? How many children will go into the system as a risk of future harm? A lot, Sam, is the answer. I, I can look at you and say a lot because um, even my limited journey through the subject of what we labelled as child stealing by the state, uh, many of these cases are simply based on future risk. There's no actual abuse of the child has taken place, but a judgment is made within these closed within the closed family court system that there may be a risk in the future. And on that basis, the child's taken away. So I, I can say to you with confidence that it's a lot of children are taken under this system. How long did it take them to take your daughter away from you? They get engaged. Well, in fact, you'd informed them. How, yes. how, how long was the process that ultimately took your daughter away from you? Two months. Two months? Two months. Yeah, they, they had gotten the rubber-stamped interim care order from Manchester Family Court. Two months were, were enough for them to take, the, the, uh, to take my daughter, Angel, away. They placed her with a, our, our white family, with all due respect, with a white family. And in their paperwork or in the law, that they are supposed to be following. They say we look out for the child's best interest, including culture, heritage, sex, and religion. Well, they say they look out for these things, but then they place the child who, who could barely speak English with a white family in Manchester. And this is not anything against anyone, but it's contradictory to what they are actually saying uh, they're looking out for the best interest of the children. Right. And Sam, what, what was happening to your son at that stage? What, was, was your daughter taken before your son was, was born? Uh, my daughter was taken first, and then my son was taken later. Uh, when he my son was taken at birth uh, from the Countess of Chester Hospital. What, what was the reason they took your son? I think I can guess, but what, what was the reason that they took your son? <laughs> I, I would guess that they took your son uh, because they'd already taken your daughter on the basis of future risk. And because they'd taken your daughter, that gave them the pretext to say, well, we've had to take the daughter into safety and therefore we now need to take the son. That's right, yes. Yeah, and I can say that but to you. I wanted, I wanted to take you a little bit 
um, before how the social engineering works. <laughs> yes, please, so, please do. They said, they, said your they told me that my relationship with my ex was dysfunctional, which I accept it was not perfect one bit because of what was going on. They told me that if I separated with him, they would give me back my children. I did. I went to different women's refuge all over the country, in fact, to save my children. I went to a refugee in Burnley. I went to a refugee in Salford. I did everything, everything. Any mother could do everything. You did everything, and at the end of the day, that was not enough to get your children back. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Not right. good enough. I went to different psychiatrists because they use something called a toxic trio to box you in so they can steal your children. They look at domestic violence, mental health, drug misuse, or anything like that. So I said, okay, I'll try whatever it takes to prove this, that I'm not, none of these three things or this toxic trio. I went to a doctor, or I went to different doctors on Harley Street, and none of them, um, none of them was, um, was none of, and all of them said I didn't have a problem. I went to a doctor, a, psych, a senior consultant psychologist called Dr. Feldman, uh, he's a consultant psychologist. I went to another doctor. He's called Dr. Passetti, Filippo. He's on Harley Street. I went to another doctor. His name is called Dr. Lennox Thomas. I saw another doctor, all privately funded by my ex-partner. I went to another doctor. Her name is called Alice Sawyer from Oxford University. I went to every single doctor to bring doctor's reports I brought, I went, I did drug tests, um, alcohol tests, you name it. I did everything. And I brought all the reports before the judge. And the judge still said, no, not good enough. Not good enough. Before my son was born, I was told my son was too small. That in fact, if, I, if they don't cut him out quickly, he's going to die. Well, this was a lie. The reports from the hospital are very clear. I've never seen the deepest deception in my life because I was raised thinking doctors could never tell anything contrary to the truth. What you're saying to me, Sam, makes complete sense because of, of many other, mainly mothers that have talked to me about this process. I've never heard the, to the term toxic trio before. Is that something which um, you are describing the techniques as, or is this a, a, a term that other people have, have used? No, that's what uh, I read all the social work books, uh, social worker manuals, and that's the basis of taking children. Right. And if they can box you in, those, in that Venn diagram, then you're going to lose your child or children. Okay. And if they um, cannot box you into that, they'll call an expert witness who will say you have a personality disorder because on the DSM-5, there is no cure for a personality disorder. 
So they have to find something, a genu- uh, not a genuine reason, but a way of um, justifying a rubber-stamped sale for a child. You are in the position you're in. Uh, I would think, say it was reasonable to say that you, you, by nature of how you came into UK, you were a vulnerable person. And then yes. you've engaged, you've willingly engaged social services uh, because yes. you believe that that was the right thing to do and that this yes. was effectively a protective measure for yourself yes. and your children. And then yes. you find that the system works against you. W- were you able to get legal help to challenge this or did you, did you try and fight this with your own knowledge from your own legal training? Oh, my goodness. I got so many lawyers, so many lawyers. And I'm so sorry to tell you that so many are involved in child snatching and stealing. You don't have to be sorry telling me that because this has been, this has been evident from all of the cases that, that I've been able to speak to the parents. Um, the story they always say is that time and time again, they were betrayed by the legal teams that they engaged. And the betrayal might happen fairly early, um, but usually the, the law firms and the solicitors or, or the barristers were taking money through legal aid. And of course, the longer the case could be dragged out, the more money they could make. Um, but it's a very, very common story for people to say, well, even my solicitor betrayed me in the court. Yes. They promised me one thing, but in the court, they said something completely different. Uh, I don't want to forget Chester Hospital, Countess of Chester Hospital. That's where I gave birth to my son. They said um, they, they needed to monitor me three to four times a week. So before my son was born, the, the doctor, um, they coerced me into having a cesarean section. When I came out of the hospital, the social worker, Diana Bacho, was waiting for my son. She works for Cheshire West and Chester. They took my son. When I came out, this woman, the social worker, told me, well, if you separate with your ex-partner and you get um, a molestation order against him, we will give you back your child. Now, every single parent under this earth will do whatever it takes, whatever it takes for their baby, whatever it takes. She went with me to the Countess of Chester Hospital, not knowing she was ensnaring me. It was a trap. She went with me to the Countess of uh, to, to Chester Court. The judge was already ready for me because she knew what she was doing. The judge was ready. I remember his name. I think he was called. And he issued a, a, a non-molestation order against my ex-partner. Remember, they are now dividing you, weakening you. Just come out of the hospital. Your brain is shattered. You're in pieces. You're bleeding heavily. You still have a cut. You're supposed to be breastfeeding. And then they're waiting for you in the main court in Manchester before. So they've already, destro- they've already damaged you and destroyed you, but then you're expected to be in court to stand and defend your child or, in fact, 
make a hasty decision to instruct one of the lawyers they set up for you. Well, we did everything. We instructed to fight for our children. We instructed QC at the time, Queen's Council. We instructed QC, Queen's Council. A day before the hearing uh, in Manchester Family Court, her clerk reaches out to me and says, we can't, cannot represent you. She's got a medical emergency. So we are sending you another lawyer tomorrow. Her name is QC, Queen's Council. She turns up in court. Turns up in court, QC. Treasure services did not turn up. Neither did their legal representatives. But the judge knew. The judge knew what was going on. Judge knew what was going on in Manchester Family Court. I think it was a tactic to drain us financially because we had paid for all these QCs to come up to defend our children. And none, none of the social workers from Salford City Council or Cheshire West City Council turned up. What was the judgment of that court hearing? What did that court hearing achieve? Well, the judge did, uh, left a note because I, I said, uh, I requested them, are you not supposed to leave um, costs to be reimbursed on this hearing? Because they sent us the paperwork that they were stealing our children. We've turned up with legal representation and they're not here. Are they not supposed to be responsible for these laws? And she left a note saying costs reserved up to date. It's still in the judgment, costs reserved. The, 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 the hearing was adjourned. My ex-partner had run out of finances. He couldn't um, finance anymore. I think they, uh, they were so pleased with this. And that's how our children ended up being stolen. So at the peak of COVID, we received, I received the adoption paperwork at my home that my children had been forcefully stolen. If I describe that in a slightly different way, so your, your children are taken for adoption and you no longer have any say in their life. And I would suspect that you're not allowed any contact with them ever again. Is that, is that the situation? Yes, I, was, I receive a letter once a year from my baby girl. Um, that's it. I don't receive anything from my son. I challenged them. I've spoken out about this on social media. For me, and other mothers would agree, and other parents would agree that this is MLM marketing of children and a pyramid scheme of selling children. Social workers come into, not all social workers are bad, but Kafka definitely is doing something heinous and sinister. Because if they're supposed to be independent, they don't actually look out for the best interest of children at all. And they that, don't look out. They don't. And this, of course, is, is the reason that you picked up when I mentioned in my report on one of the UK column 
uh, news um, editions, you picked up on my use of the word, word of the expression Kafkas, yes. because you had already come across their actions in your own case. And what I yeah. learned over a number of different cases talking to the mothers is that, of course, Kafkas put themselves forward as representing the child. Their, their sole job is to represent the child and make sure that everything that happens around the proceedings is in the best interest of the child. But in actual fact, uh, the, the story from most of the mothers that I've dealt with is that Kafkas worked hand in glove with the local authorities and the social services, and they were part of the ring through the secret family courts to take the children. They do, uh, because uh, I'll give you a clear example. The woman who took my daughter was a black woman from Salford City Council. Her name is... She was, at the, at the time, working um, for Salford City Council. When she managed to steal my child, she was awarded a, a job in Kafka's. So she's now working as a child's guardian in Kafka's. So they go, um, once, once you steal more babies from families, you awarded a job in Kafka's. So most of them, if not all of them, were former social workers working with local authorities. Yes. Sam, you, you've, um, well, you've been amazingly brave to take us through a lot of personal detail about, about your life and what's happened to you. Uh, I've learned a lot from, from what, what you've had to tell us uh, today. Uh, the trafficking, yes, I've read things, but when you start to understand how that works and you've gone all the way through the horrors of that trafficking, you've come to a country, the United Kingdom, where initially you felt safe and you were interacting with people that you believed to be caring. Subsequently, you've had your children taken away from you. What do you think about the United Kingdom now? What do you think about the country that you live in? It's one of the greatest civilizations on earth. It has more people doing good than harm. There are a lot more wonderful people in this country than those who are doing evil things. There are a lot of wonderful people in this great country that are doing good than those who are doing evil to people. And they, were, uh, they want to make us believe that they are more evil people, but no, that's not true. They are more wonderful people in this country. They are more wonderful people in this country than those who are doing things like the abuse I've endured, that the abuse my children have endured, that the abuse most people have endured. Okay. In, in the conversation that we had in the very beginning, which was just a private conversation between the two of us, um, it was obvious that you had learned so much, both from that legal training that you had, but through the experience that you've had of having your own children taken. And yes. I, I, I know you have got a lot to talk about and a lot to teach people about that system. So I, I'm going to suggest that I think that we've come to a natural conclusion for our, our interaction today. 
Um, yes. You've ended with a really sad and poignant part that your children were taken away from you. Stolen is the phrase that you've used, and I, I would completely agree with that. But you've yes. also gone on not only to learn about the system, but also to try and do something about it. Part of that led you to agree to, to do the interview with us today. So I'm going to ask very nicely if you will be prepared to come back again and do a part two where we can really drill down into this system, the system, the social services Kafkas system and, and the court system and how it does what it's done to you and so, uh, so many other mothers. Would, would you be prepared to join us again? Yes, definitely. I would love to come back and I'm so, so grateful, ever so grateful for this opportunity, Brian. Thank you so much. And thank you so much to our dear listeners and everyone else and my emotional support. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. Yes, there is, a, there is quite a lot to learn and it's really shocking. You don't expect another, um, you don't expect some of the professionals to do the things they do, but that's what it, what's, what's happening at the moment. And children are really being abused in the United Kingdom every single day by those who are supposed to be protecting them. Yeah, indeed. And I don't, I don't know what the exact figure is now for children within the care system. It was somewhere between 63 and 65,000 children. I'm going to also thank you, Sam, for saying such positive things about this country, uh, because it is very easy for, for people to believe that, that everything around us is bad and everything to do with authority is bad. Uh, that is clearly not always the case. And we know there are very many uh, good people working within social services yes. um, and the NHS. And indeed, there are people within the legal profession who are trying to do the right thing, but often in very difficult circumstances. But thank you for giving us a positive line on that. And I'm also going to add that in another case, um, uh, a CAFCAS officer recently made a very strong and positive decision in order to back a family who were also facing the likelihood that they were going to lose their children. So there are good people there. And what, what we really need to do is be talking about what's really happening and getting those good people to stand up and be counted. And you, of course, are clearly one of the people that's been prepared to stand up and be counted. So I'm going to say to you, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm truly grateful. Thank you so much. Okay, Sam. And lastly, I'm going to give a big thank you to the lady who's just been sitting quietly in the background to make sure that you're okay. So thank you for joining us as well. We'll leave it there, but we are going to have a part two uh, when we'll be talking in more detail about how this child system stealing system works and really what people should try and do to overturn it. So watch out for that. Uh, this interview will be up as soon as we can on the UK column. And uh, we'll also make sure that uh, we um, give notice of, of when part two will be. Okay, that's it for today. Thank you very much for joining us. Bye-bye. <laughs>